Okay, all right. It's good to see everyone today. We're going to go ahead and uh, begin our Bible study. And we are on uh, Lord's Day 4 in the, our little booklet, which is page 26. Page 26. And let's pray and then we'll uh, begin our Bible study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be together this morning. And Lord, for the, the fellowship that we've had uh, with our brothers in Christ. Lord, as well, we're very grateful for the food that you provide, and especially for Mr. Michael and uh, his labor of love uh, for all of us this morning. So, Lord, we are grateful for these many blessings that you've bestowed upon us. But most of all, to be able to open your word and to be taught. And Lord, we do pray that you would instruct us. Lord, teach us and give us a fuller understanding of our salvation. Lord, that we might understand more what is the love of God toward his people. Lord, how it is that you uh, have saved us from our sins. So, Lord, help us to, to see just the magnitude of, of our depravity and of our guilt before you and all that was necessary in order to take that away. Uh, so we pray for you to be with us today. Lord, bless our study. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. So we are on uh, Lord's Day 4, and we remember that this catechism is... Uh, dealing with doctrine in this kind of uh, theological or this systematic way, right? Building upon one thing into another into another. And the main thrust is to teach about what is our only comfort in life. And that is that we are saved and that we belong to God and that all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. But in order to understand this, it's necessary first to understand the guilt of our sin. And this is where they begin in explaining the comfort of the believer is in sin and misery, right? And how it is that we came as mankind into this state of sinfulness, of depravity, being guilty and being under the condemnation of God, and then how it is that Christ delivers us from all of these things and how that comes about and takes place. So we've been dealing with the issue of sin, and the last time we dealt with uh, God creating men in a righteous way, but then that man has become perverse and sinful because of their own transgression of the law of God. And then we dealt with uh, the last question, is man unable to do any good at all before God, right? Or is the nature of man wholly corrupt or is it only partially corrupt so that we're still able to do a mixture of good and evil? And the conclusion was that man is unable to do any good before God, but rather in our natural state, we are completely wholly sinful. And this is the doctrine of total depravity, that we are depraved in every uh, fiber of our being, right? From our mind, to our soul, to our will, to our affections, so that we are unable to do any good, any righteousness that is acceptable in the sight of God that we might be able to present to God as the basis of our salvation, right? So there's nothing that is good in us. So now we'll pick up on question nine, which is Lord's Day four. And this is dealing with the justice of God, right? The justice of God in holding us accountable for our sins. Question number nine says, is God then not unjust by requiring in his law what man cannot do? And the answer, no, for God so created man that he was able to do it. 
But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all of his descendants of these gifts. Here, the question is addressing this issue of of whether or not God is just or unjust in requiring of men, right? Because all men who have ever been created, we are all still obligated to offer to God true obedience, true righteousness, that everyone born into the world is obligated to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, might, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, and to do this perfectly from his birth until his death. In both his outer man and his inner man, this is what the law of God requires. And that binding of the law is still applicable to all men. This is the covenant of works that Adam was created under and was placed in in the Garden of Eden. Now, in the Garden of Eden, in his original state, Adam had the ability to obey the law of God. He could either obey or he could disobey. He was not in a state where he was immutable, where he could not fall from his original righteousness. But in his original created state, Adam did have the ability to obey God, but also the ability to disobey God. However, because of what he did, the transgression of Adam and the depravity that that brings upon the human race. None of us are born or none of us are brought into this world with that ability. We don't have the ability to obey the law of God, but all men can only disobey it. And this is because of the influence of sin. However, is God just in expecting men to obey his law and then condemning them for failing to do so when men do not have the ability to keep the law of God, right? That's the question that it is addressing. Is God unjust by requiring his law to be kept that man cannot do, he doesn't have the ability to, but then condemning men for their failure to do so, right? Which is what all men are under. This is why men are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. All men are under the wrath of God because they do not obey the law of God. However, they don't have the ability to obey the law of God. So is God unjust in condemning men, expecting them to do what they cannot do, and then judging and condemning them for their failure to do so? And their answer is, no, God is not unjust, but God is completely just in this expectation. And the reason men do not have the ability to obey the law of God isn't God's fault. Whose fault is it? It is our own fault. It is the fault of man It is because of our sin that we do not have the ability. So the expectation to keep God's law remains, but the ability to keep it has been lost because of sin. And this is not God's fault, but rather it is our fault, right? The fault of man that we inherit because of the sin of Adam. So that is what they are addressing. Now, the scripture proofs. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Genesis 1.31, this is addressing the creation of man and that when God created man, he created him very good. And this was true of all of God's creation. So that God cannot be blamed or charged with sin or fault or guilt because of the current state of mankind. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God saw all that he made and it was very good, right? This includes the natural world. 
everything in the universe, the animal kingdom, right? The plants, the trees, but also mankind. Everything God created was very good, which means that man in his original state could not have been created with sin. Because if he was created with sin from God, then he would not be very good. And this would not be an accurate depiction of the creation of God. So God created man very good. But now when we look at the world, is man very good? No, man is very bad, right? He's the actual opposite of that. And then where did that come from? How did this come about? And that's what they address next. Man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all of his descendants of these gifts. Man robbed himself by the temptation of the devil of all of the gifts, including his original righteousness. The ability to keep the law of God has been lost. Man robbed, he stole from himself because instead of listening to the word of the Lord, he instead believed the lies of the devil. And therefore, it is man's fault and man's fault alone that he does not have the ability to keep the law of God. God is not to blame, but man is to blame. It is our own fault in our own failure. Genesis 3, 13. Genesis 3, 13. This would be proving the instigation of the devil. The devil was the external tempter who tempted Adam and Eve to transgress the law of God. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Through the deception of the serpent, right, the instigation of the devil, he was the tempter that came and instigated Adam and Eve to commit this transgression of the law of God. He's the one that sowed the seeds of doubt of disbelief in their mind so that instead of listening to God and obeying God and seeing the word of God as good and beneficial to them, they doubted that word. They believed God was depriving them of good and therefore they transgressed and went outside the boundaries that had been established for them by God. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 44. John 8, 44. There it says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. So there, the devil is a murderer from the beginning, right? And the first murder was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Though their bodies did not die immediately, yet their souls did die. They were put into a state of death. And because of his temptation, their bodies did eventually die. So he is the one that brought death into the world by tempting Adam and Eve to sin. And he did this through his lies. He is a liar. This is what he does. He lies from the beginning. He's always been a liar. There is no truth in him. And whatever he says is coming from his own nature. And his own nature is a nature of lies. In contrast to God, whose nature is truthful. God always speaks the truth. And the devil always speaks lies. 
And where does this manifest itself in the world today? In the Word of God. Whenever the devil is attacking the Word of God, seeking for us to disbelieve the Word of God, this is what he does. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and he continues to do it today through the various false religions, philosophies, ideologies that are promoted all throughout the world. Anything that contradicts what's in the Bible is coming from the devil, who is the father of all lies, and therefore we should not believe it. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. 1 Timothy 2, 13. says, For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So here, it was not Adam who was deceived. Though Adam was ultimately deceived, he wasn't the first one who was deceived, right? When the devil tempted Adam and Eve, he intentionally went after the woman. He deceived the woman, then the woman gave to the husband, and then he ate as well. So it was through this instigation, through the lies of the devil, that man sinned against God. And his sin is here described as deliberate disobedience deliberate disobedience. There was not an issue of lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, God being insufficient, not sufficiently clear in the transmission of His Word. God made it very clear what was expected of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He told them plainly that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, do not eat from the fruit of that tree. He told them very clearly and plainly what would be the penalty if they did eat from that tree. That the day that they eat of it, they would surely die. So the law of God was sufficiently clear and the penalty for the transgression of that law was sufficiently clear. Everything was made clear and available to them. Also, there was no deprivation of any good thing. Everything that they needed for life, for godliness, for happiness was graciously supplied to them by God. So their disobedience was not accidental. It wasn't a matter of not having the right information, that it wasn't unintentional. It was deliberate, willful disobedience of God. So there's no excuse for it, right? No excuse at all. Just like if you tell your child, right, do not eat one of those cookies. And they completely understand what you're saying. They know where the cookie jar is. They know that they're not supposed to do it. And then they go and they do it anyway. This is an act of deliberate, willful disobedience against the parents. And this is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And at this point, they didn't even have a sin nature, right? They didn't even have the flesh in order to weaken them and deprive them and, and push them toward this evil. They still had goodness in them, and yet they deliberately sinned against God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So there, they see the 
benefit in their own mind. This is because they are under this suspicion, the doubts, the disbelief that has been sown there by the devil. They desire this and they willfully take from it. She eats and then she gives to her husband and he eats as well. So no one's holding a gun to anyone's head, but it is their own sin, their own desire, this deliberate disobedience of God that brought them to this state. And as a result, they robbed themselves, right? Adam robbed himself and all of his descendants of these gifts. The gifts of God given to Adam in his original state was lost whenever he committed this willful act of defiance and disobedience against God. And not only was it lost for Adam, but Adam there in the garden was serving as a covenant head, as a representative for all of his posterity or all of his descendants. And since every single person in the history of the world has their descent from Adam, then what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden is transferred or transmitted to all of his descendants as well. So those gifts that were lost by Adam were lost in his descendants as well. This is why none of us are created or we're not born into this world with original righteousness. We don't come into the world innocent, pure, without any sin, but we come with the guilt of sin already upon us and we have a disposition, a predisposition to commit sin. And as soon as a child is able to manifest sin, what will they do? They do it. They, they manifest it very, very early in life. And this is because they have a sin nature from, from the womb. Even from conception, according to Psalm 51, we have this sin nature. This is Romans chapter 5. This doctrine is called the doctrine of original sin original sin and it is the doctrine that Adam's sin in the garden he was not there as a private individual it was not just his own sin that affected himself but he was there as a representative as a head a covenant head of the entire human race and this is why the world and mankind is in the state that it is in right now Romans chapter 5 Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned there with Adam. We sinned with Adam in the garden, though he was there 6,000 years ago and we were not yet born, yet we sinned with him in the garden of Eden. Then also Romans five eighteen and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the, dis through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So there it is Adam and Christ who are being contrasted here. Right? There is a similarity between the two and there is a dissimilarity between the two. But the similarity is that both Adam and Christ serve as representatives or heads of their collective people. And whatever they did is transferred or given to their descendants. Adam committed sin. He committed one transgression. And so because of that one transgression, condemnation came not only to Adam, but to all of his descendants as well. Through his disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
the many are you and me. We were made sinners through his disobedience. But then on the other side, through Christ, through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Right? We have to have a new head, a covenant head. Instead of that being Adam, it must be Christ. Right? We must get an interest in Christ. And this we get by faith in him. Right? By faith. Not for everyone. Not not all people have Christ as their representative, but only the church, the believers, only those who are of the household of faith. We must get an interest in Christ by faith in him. Then his obedience is counted to us so that we are made righteous in him, just as we were made sinful in Adam. Then verse 10, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Answer, certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Here, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? And the answer is certainly not. Here, men hang their hopes on two uh, false ideas. The first one is that men are not guilty because of Adam's sin. So they will plead innocence that it's not fair, it's not right for God to hold us accountable because of someone else's sin. Now, if that doesn't work, then their second plea will be that God is gracious and merciful. And because God is a God of mercy, he's going to let everyone off the hook. That God is a God of indulgence who indulges the sins of men, who winks at the indiscretions of the children of men, much like a a grandfather winks at the indiscretions of his grandchildren. So men hope that if God will count us as sinners, that he is so gracious and merciful that he will let everyone off the hook. But this is a denial of the character and nature of God. That God is a just God and he will by no means clear the guilty. And that those who are sinners will be condemned by God. And this means that all mankind, because of our sin, both original sin, the sin we inherit from Adam, but then all of our actual sins, right? Because we are doubly guilty in these two regards. We have the guilt of Adam's sin upon us. But then we also have all of our own transgressions. All of us have committed many sins. Even as Christians, we still commit many sins against God. And will God simply sweep these sins under the rug and act like none of these things have ever happened? And the answer is, of course not. God cannot do this because God is a just God and he will not allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished, right? And the reason that people believe or hope or think that God will is because they do not understand sin, the nature of sin, and what it is against God. How severe and magnified it is as our sin is against a holy God, right? There is nothing that anyone can do to us, no sin that could ever be committed against us that will ever reach the magnitude of all of our sins against God. Even if someone murdered you or murdered one of your loved ones, Right? Would you want that sin, that crime to be swept under the rug? Would we not want the judge to punish the, the, the criminal, the murderer for what he had done? Of course we would want that to happen. And if a judge just let the criminal walk free and there was no punishment, though 
he was clearly guilty of this crime, we would cry injustice. We would say that this is not right, this is not fair. This is a, an egregious injustice that has been committed because this man is a murderer. He murdered my family member. He is guilty. All of the evidence is there for him to be punished for this crime. And yet this judge, this unjust judge, let him walk free. This doesn't even happen in this present world, unless you're a Clinton or if you have a lot of money. However, right, typically this is the way people think. But then in regards of their own sin against God, what do we all want? Everyone wants God just to let them off the hook, right? It's no big deal. Why would God do this? He's a God of love. He's supposed to be gracious and merciful. Yet our sins against God are greater than anything that we could do to one another. And how many times have we sinned against God in the course of our life, both in our mind, in our heart, in our, with our words, right? In our actions, right? We sin against God so many times, right? If God should count them, who could stand? Right? Our iniquities reach up to the very heavens. And yet people think that God is just going to let them waltz into heaven, sweep everything under the rug, and say, it's no big deal, come on in. Right? Because I am a merciful and loving God. This is because they do not understand the justice and righteousness of God. We must understand this. And those who remain in their sin... God will not allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished. He is terribly displeased. He is full of wrath and retribution and righteous anger against the sin of man. And if men will not repent, then God will in due time punish them because of their sins with eternal punishment, both in this life and in the life to come. God does both. He judges men now and he will judge them eternally. And this is what will happen if men will not repent and put their faith in Christ. Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, and we'll read verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So here... You have these two attributes of God, his mercy, his love, and also his justice, his righteousness, and his wrath against sin. And these are here together at the same time, whenever God is proclaiming to Moses who he is. This is what is true of God. He is both merciful and he is just. And we can't say, well, that was in the Old Testament. That's what people want to do. They want to say in the Old Testament, God was wrathful and angry and, and uh, he punished people. But in the New Testament, he's all grace and mercy. Because here he is compassionate in the Old Testament. God has always been merciful, gracious, and compassionate. He's always been one who forgives iniquity and sin. But he also has always been one who will not leave the guilty unpunished. But he will visit their sins upon them. 
in God's character does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We cannot have the mercy of God without also having the God of righteousness, the God of justice, because here they are spoken in the same in the same breath, right? In the same sentence. These things are declared by the very mouth of God. This is who God is. So if we do not like the justice and righteousness of God, his retribution against sin, then we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. This is who God is. We must come to terms with these things. Psalm 5, right? And people try to find many spurious ways to get around this. The chief one being this separation between the old and new. As if God changed, right, in, from one testament to the other. Had a makeover or, um, you know, went through some anger management counseling classes, and now he's come on the other side and he's better off. It's like, this is ridiculous. Psalm 5, 4 to 6. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So there, God takes no pleasure in wickedness. The boastful cannot stand before him. He hates workers of iniquity. He's going to destroy all of those who speak falsehood. He abhors, right? Uh, to abhor someone is to detest. God detests the, blood, the man of bloodshed and deceit, which is a description of all of us in our natural state. In our natural state, this is why we are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We're not sweet, innocent, little sinners, but rather we are of abhorrence to God. Psalm 7, verse 10. Psalm 7, 10. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. If man will not repent, right? The unrepentant sinners, obstinate sinners, if they will not repent, then they will have the wrath of God. It will come upon them. He only saves the upright in heart. And none of us by nature are upright in heart. We can only be upright in heart by conversion, right? By new birth of the Spirit. Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Nahum 1, 2 and 3. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm is his way. So there, an avenging God, a wrathful God. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Yes, he's slow in anger but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He is patient, but eventually his patience will wear thin. And if a man persists in his sins, then God's vengeance will come upon him. Romans chapter 1, 
Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that wrath is being manifested now. It's being revealed from heaven now in the judgments that God pours out upon the earth. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. God is the one who brings calamity. He brings disasters. He brings plagues, famines, blight. He does all of these things among the children of men as judgments and punishments because of our sins. So there are both temporal punishments in this world that happen because of sin. There are many examples of this in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. And then there are eternal punishments as well. And God is the one who is doing this because of the sin of man. Romans chapter 5, we've read, but we'll read it again. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? Death is the ultimate punishment or judgment of God against sin. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That death is both temporal and it is eternal. It, it is dealing with this life and it also is dealing with the life to come. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So let no one deceive you with empty words. The empty words, the deceptive words, are the people who say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They say that you can live in sin and still have the favor and blessing of God. That you can still go to heaven while living in your sin and your iniquity. These are the empty words of deceivers, of false teachers, who say soothing things to people, who tell them that everything will be fine, everything will be all right. You can live in your sin, you can practice sin, and still have the favor and blessing of God. But he says, don't let people deceive you with these kinds of empty words, because be these things, right, these sins that men commit, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. We have to repent and turn away from these things and live a godly life as best as we can. Now, again, no one can do that perfectly, but we must put away sin and strive to live a godly, pure life. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It is appointed for every man to die, which is going to happen to all of us. We're all going to die. And then after we die, what happens? We stand before God in judgment. God will judge us, and He will reward each man according to what he has done. And those who, by disobedience, through sin, who have lived uh, according to their flesh, who refuse to repent and believe the gospel, He will give them what they deserve. 
wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil. This is what they will receive as the just penalty for their disobedience against God. And these things God has declared in his word. According to Deuteronomy 27, 26, and here they quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26, Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. The law of God pronounces a curse upon those who do not confirm the words of this law and do them. And the words of this law, at its very foundation, right, at the very core of it, The words of this law is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, might, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law of God summarized. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And anyone who does not do these things and do them perfectly, but God does not grade on the curve. He grades either, it's either pass-fail with God. It's either perfect or it's imperfect, right? Even if you do it in some measure, which no one does, but if you keep the whole law and fail at one point, you become what? Accountable for the whole thing. This is the expectation of God. It's either life for perfect obedience or it is eternal damnation, a curse for any disobedience. That is what God expects. And it is to love God with all the heart, soul, might, and strength from womb to tomb, without any transgression and to love neighbor as self from womb to tomb without any transgression. If you do that, then you will live. But if you disobey one time, then you're under the curse of the law. And who can say that they've done this perfectly their whole life? Only a a lunatic, right? An insane person, a very arrogant person actually, right? For them to say this, because we know that none of us have done this. Obeyed God perfectly in our heart, in our mind, with our mouth, with our actions every day of our life, we know that we haven't done this. Who of us can even say that we perfectly honored our parents? Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and mother. Have any of us done that perfectly in our heart, with our mouth, with our actions? I know that I didn't do that. You could ask my mom and dad. They will testify to you. Many, many infractions of that fifth commandment. And that's just one of the commandments. And that is sufficient to condemn the entire human race. And I'm sure that if we asked any of your parents, Mike is here, Gideon's there. We, oh, look, we got Matt and Mike uh, Long over here. We could ask them. Brandon's back there with his boys. I've got mine here. If we asked any of them, all, all of us would agree and affirm the same thing. So the law of God does promise life and blessing to those who keep it. But the expectation is perfect obedience. So it offers this, but it is unattainable. It's unattainable by any man because no one is able to do it because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's like offering a cure to a dead person. All you have to do to become alive is get up and go and drink this, this cure and it'll cure you of your deadness. But can a dead person get up, rouse himself, and get up and take this medicine that's going to give him life. It's impossible, he's dead, he can't do anything. 
This is what we are like in our natural state. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The law offers life and blessing, but only on the condition of perfect obedience. But because we're dead, we can't give perfect obedience. And so instead of the blessing of the law coming to us, what are we left with? The curse of the law, because it offers both a blessing and a curse. And the curse is for the transgressors, and that is who we are. Galatians 3 verse 10. Galatians 3 verse 10. For as many as are works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Anyone who relies or depends on works of the law for their salvation, for their standing with God, they are under a curse because the law requires perfect obedience and it also promises a curse for those who disobey. And all of us disobey in many, many ways multiple times. Then question 11. But is God not also merciful? Is God not also merciful? And the answer is yes, God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Our idea, our understanding of the mercy of God can never be in contradiction with the justice of God. These two things must come into harmony, right? They must be harmonized in our mind and they are harmonized in the Bible. And in the way that God administers his mercy, it must be consistent with his justice. He cannot deny himself and he cannot violate his own justice. And this is the dilemma the Bible is answering. How can a just God be merciful to sinners like you and me? That is what the gospel is teaching us. How it is that God who is just and righteous, who wants to and will punish all sin and iniquity, how can God be merciful? How can he receive into his favor, into his family, sinful men like you and me? And what is the answer? What is the solution to this? It is the cross of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the cross, God's mercy and his justice are brought together in perfect harmony. His justice is satisfied in the person of Christ because all of his wrath against our sin is poured out upon him and completely satisfied. And now that our sin is taken away, it opens up the pathway for God to be merciful to us to receive us into his favor and into his kindness. So it cannot be through sweeping it under the rug, but it must be on the basis of Jesus Christ. God is merciful, but only through the cross of Christ. This is the only way that it can come about. So God is indeed merciful. Exodus chapter 20. Yes, the Bible does teach that God is a God of love and a God of mercy. But this mercy can never violate his justice and righteousness. Exodus 20, 4 to 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So there you see both of them. God is a jealous God who visits iniquity on the fathers and children to the third and fourth generation, but also a God of loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there, even here, the emphasis on his love and his mercy is being magnified. His wrath and his visiting of iniquity is to three and four generations, but his loving kindness is for thousands, for thousands, showing the bountiful and the mercifulness of God. Then we've already read Exodus chapter 34, 34 verses six and seven. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So God is indeed a merciful God. Then Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9. says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. So there, again, the mercy, the loving kindness, the compassion of God. This indeed is true of God. But also, he is just. God is a just God who will not uh, let the guilty go unpunished. He will avenge his enemy, he will get his vengeance against his enemies, against his adversaries. He will punish them because of their sins. We've already read Exodus 25 and 34, 7. So let's go to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 to 11. Seven, nine to 11. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. But repay those who hate him to their faces, to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. So there... He repays those who hate him, right? He repays them to their faces. He destroys them. He will not delay, right? He will repay them according to what they have done. So his mercy, which is stated, is not in contradiction with his justice and his wrath. And if in our mind there is a contradiction, it's coming from our own sinful flesh. It's not coming from the Bible. Hebrews 10, 30 to 31, we read already Psalm 5, 4, and 6, that if man will not repent, God will wet his sword, meaning he will sharpen his sword and get it ready to execute his vengeance against his enemies. Hebrews 10, 30 to 31 says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. And then it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, to fall into his hands of judgment, of condemnation, for him to execute his wrath upon you. This is a terrifying thing. So merciful, yes, but also just. And because God is just, it requires that all sin committed against him must be punished with the most severe everlasting punishment of body and soul. Every sin must be punished. There can be no sin that is unpunished. Otherwise, God is not a righteous judge. He is an unrighteous judge if he lets any sin go unpunished. So all sin will be punished, either in the person who committed it or in Jesus Christ. These are the only two options. Either a person will bear their own sin and the punishment of that sin themselves for all eternity in the lake of fire, or their sins have been paid for and punished in the person of Jesus Christ. But one way or another, every single sin that has ever been committed will receive a punishment according to the justice and righteousness of God. And God's justice, according to his own standard of righteousness, is everlasting punishment of both body and soul. Matthew 25, 45 to 46. Everlasting. Now we might think, well, that seems a little over the top for all eternity. However, we have to consider, when we sin, who are we sinning against? Are we sinning against a finite being? Or are we sinning against the infinite, eternal God? Well, it is the infinite, eternal God that we sin against. And so because our sin is against the eternal God, then our sin deserves an eternal punishment. This is why it is eternal. It never comes to an end because the violation, the sin, is against God and the punishment must fit the crime. Right? We all understand this. The punishment must fit the crime. The greater the crime, the greater the punishment. Well, isn't it true that whenever a sin is committed against a person of high rank or honor, right? It'd be one thing for me to go and give an attention slap to Corbin, right? <clears throat> to smack him in the face, right? Not that I would do that, Corbin. But that would be one thing, and it would not be right, it would be wrong, and there would be a just penalty for me doing that. However, if I did the same thing to the President of the United States, or if I was in the military and I was a soldier and I did that to my commanding officer, would that not receive a greater punishment? Because not only am I doing it against a man, but I'm also doing it against someone who holds this office of authority, this position, this rank. Therefore, it aggravates that sin, that crime, and it makes it more severe. And it receives a more severe punishment in doing those things. Well, our sins are against who? Are against God, our creator, the king of righteousness, the king of kings and lord of lords, the eternal God. Therefore, they are magnified. This makes our sins more egregious because of the rank and the position of the one that we are sinning against. And because he is the eternal God, therefore our sins deserve an eternal punishment. And this is why the lake of fire is for all eternity. And there, the souls and bodies of the wicked will be there for all eternity being punished 
because of the sins that they've committed against God, both body and soul. Right? There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, the just and the unjust. The souls and bodies of all men will be reunited together. The righteous will go to eternal life and the wicked will go to eternal punishment in the lake of fire where their body and soul will be tormented for all eternity because of the sins that they've committed against God. Matthew 25, 45 and 46. Then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And there, if we go to 41, 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there it is eternal fire, eternal punishment in the lake of fire, body and soul for sins against God. And if a man will not repent, then this is what he will receive as the just penalty for his sins. And if God did not send Christ to down the cross for us, this is what all of us would get. This is what all of us deserve by nature. We are children of wrath and we deserve this type of penalty. And then the only reason we don't get that is because of the kindness of God. That instead of inflicting his wrath upon us, it has been diverted onto another, onto a sacrifice to Christ, and he has died in our place and bore the wrath of God for us. Okay, so we'll stop there. And then next month, we will pick up on Lord's Day number five, which now begins to explain salvation. Right? How it is that God can be merciful to sin- sinners like us who deserve the wrath of God. If God is just, then how can he also be merciful? And it will begin to explain how God is merciful to sinners by providing salvation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then all of the doctrines associated with that.